there's always something new from our sponsor, Text Control. They just released version 30 of their document processing library that includes new document collaboration features. Using TX Text Control, you can integrate online document editing, document signing, collaboration, and PDF processing into your ASP.NET and ASP.NET Core web applications. Whether you need to create PDF invoices, quotations, or reports, TX Text Control provides the developer libraries for all document-related tasks. Check out the new features and see their technologies in action by visiting the live demo at demos.textcontrol.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And it's Richard Cavill. And, uh, well, here we are. This is the second show on the 18th that we've recorded. Um, right. How was your St. Patrick's Day? Uh, it was it was drunken craziness. Was it really? Okay. Well, it wasn't me drunken, but it mm-hmm. was drunken craziness because I went to the new iteration of Hannafin's Pub, which is called okay. 40 Thieves, over in Groton, which is a better pub. Uh, you know, I have a friend from Dublin who's a, a you know Irish American, and he built this great, great pub. And then he closed it down, moved across the river, a bigger place, took him a longer time to open. But the long and short of it is, you know, green beer, green people, <laughs> uh, people drinking way more than they should drink, yeah, and falling over and starting to yell at each other and. Oh yeah, just all the stuff you'd expect from a from a real traditional. Is it a bit of that like two years being locked down kind of craziness? It it was, yeah, Yeah. it was too. But add to that a fifteen dollar plate of absolutely flavorless corned beef boiled dinner, like with no seasoning, everything just boiled, no butter, no nothing, just like nasty, nah, nasty. It's no excuse for bad corned beef. But I got to play, so that was fun. In the end, you got to play. Yeah. All right. Happy St. Patrick's Day to everybody. Uh, Three weeks late now, I think. Something like that, yeah. Something like that. Well, you brought up the 18th. It's the day after, so I figured, you know. And uh, I want to apologize in advance for the monster truck rally you hear outside my house. Uh, You know, it's a beautiful (laughs) day out here, and the neighbors are firing up their quads and their big pick them up trucks and uh racing up and down the also the the uh helicopters are flying overhead uh because their national guard is doing uh drills and stuff like that so i'm wow. not even going to try to pretend they're not there just okay there you go so let's get started with better know a framework awesome <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? All right, so you know about Redux. Maybe yeah. you don't know about Redux. Maybe you part know about it. Flux, the Flux pattern. Is that all part of React? Um, I don't know where Redux actually came from, and it would only take me like five minutes to figure that out, but I don't want to do that now. Okay. But essentially, it's a way to maintain state without um, mutating state. And so I'm going to talk about this Blazor library called Fluxor. Okay. And it's on GitHub. And then this is show 1788. Mm-hmm. So if you go to 1788.pwop.me, you'll get there. Um, essentially, what it does is it's a, a library for Blazor that mm-hmm. implements the Flux pattern to do Redux. And this is, you know, traditionally state is done outside of components in Blazor, you know, with a scoped service. Think of the session object, right? right? So you have state that you want to move outside of, say, the counter page, which is the canonical example, right? The the, the current count is a, a component-level variable, so whenever that component gets reloaded or the page gets reloaded, it just goes away. So if you want to maintain that counter, you have to move it outside of the component. And so that's the whole idea behind uh, Fluxor. However, it's not enough that you just have 
this object that maintains state because typically what you need to do is notify other objects when that state changes, right? Right. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. So what do you do? You have events. Now, if you Mm -hmm. have an event and a component that also raises an event to another component, and it might actually even get back to the original component, you know, resulting in utter chaos. So it gets really (laughs) complicated when you have lots and lots of components that are all dependent on this shared state. So what Fluxor does is in using Redux, it creates an immutable state, meaning that nobody can just go up and change the state. You you have a dispatcher from the component that uh, uses an action, which is another class which has stuff about how to mutate the state, and then a reducer class, which takes the existing state and creates it anew. And it's the only thing that can create that. It it replaces the old state with the new state and then updates the store, which is not a, a, a scoped service, but a singleton service. And so it's singleton because you might have uh, states of different types. So it's a store of T. And that is a, a roundabout way of saying that this is good. For, and it's really good for implementing state in a Blazor application where you have lots of components sharing state, but it's also a bit complex to set up. Like you have, for every component, you've got an action, you've got a reducer, and then you've got the store of T for every type. So, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of setup work and it's a bit of ceremony, but it's mm-hmm. really, really solid. So I'm yeah. going to be, and probably by now, I have already created a Blazor train episode on Fluxor, but so go to blazertrain.com if you want to see if I have. Right. Uh, I can't predict the future, but I'm thinking that that's going to be a good one. Yeah, it's cool, man. Otherwise, check out Fluxor. And that's on what I got. Up. Who's talking to us, dude? Gravity comment off of show 1739, the one we did back in May of 2021, talking about Studio 2022 with an array of troublemakers, uh, Anthony Candisoli, Simon Calvert, Andy Sterling. It was great romp and fun. That's before oh, yeah. the product shit, right? We were, yeah. we were, we were uh, talking about what was coming. I know we're talking debugging today, so I uh, really wanted to get into, that's all, you know, the, they said then, months before the product was released, hey, you're going to be blown away with the new debugging features. So it's great to sort of dig into the meats and potato of that. But the, one of the comments on this show is from Brendan Parker, because we were talking about running Visual Studio on ARM hardware. Mm, right. And so Brendan says, you guys laugh at Visual Studio running on ARM, but I think it'd be pretty sweet. Given these new M1 MacBooks, I see demand. And of course, there's a next generation of M1s being mm. released now. And those processes are monsters. Yeah. I'm still waiting on them to evolve a bit, such that they become more developer-friendly. Uh, you know, better developer tooling, studio, and so forth, not running on ARM. It is possible to get some of that tooling to work with the right emulations in place, which is true. You can use x64 emulation, but not everything works. Uh, but I don't have the time or patience to figure all that stuff out. As someone who uses a Mac as my PC, I live in Visual Studio in my day job, and there certainly isn't anything that touches it for C-sharp development on the Mac. VS Code and Visual Studio for Mac make attempts, but they're a long way off from the traditional Visual Studio development experience. Mm. Which, again, it, that's a very personal choice. Mm-hmm. You know, we, for better or worse, quote, unquote, grew up with IDEs and Studio being this big one from, you know, starting back in the 90s. So I, I think we see that as a comfortable place. Lots of other developers don't. That's not the way they think at all. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and yeah, when I, when I think, you know, I was talking about the M1 processor the other day with some folks. I was saying, this is Tim Cook actually putting his fingerprint on Apple. Yeah. You know, not with anything, not with the sort of Jobsian approach to beautiful devices and so forth, mm-hmm. but with sort of that meat and potatoes. What if we went all in on the highest performance ARM device we could make that was fully integrated yeah. to make a process that makes everybody, you know, sit up and go, oh, man, we got to work harder. Mm. I did go back and look, double check all the notes on uh, docs around running uh, Studio on ARM. And they don't recommend it, but mm. it will work with x64 emulation. You're just going to be running into some trouble. It takes a while to mm. install. Some of the debugging stuff specifically is problematic, and I can see why. I also went and checked the Visual Studio community site. 
and looked at the posting from 2020 on Can We Get Native Arm Support in Visual Studio? Hmm. And Andy Sterling, who was on that show, has been uh, interacting with that. And it is, you know, uh, under review. They're, they're considering whether it makes sense to actually do a native ARM compilation of Studio, which I think is very cool. But hmm. I wouldn't expect it anytime soon. I think that's not a trivial thing to pull off, but we'll see what happens. Hmm. So, Brennan, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And you should definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin, and he's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. And, you know, just because you have one of those new fancy ARM uh, M1 processors doesn't mean that just because you can send a 1,000 copies of a single tweet doesn't mean you should. Right. I'm just saying. You know who you are. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. (laughs) All right. I'd like to introduce to you, uh, for the first time on .NET Rocks, Ms. Isadora Rodopoulos, a software engineer at the Visual Studio Debugger team, spending most of her time debugging the debugger. She's a debugging debugger debugger. Exactly. <laughs> she works on the .NET, you guessed it, debugging experience and hot oh, reload. Yeah. And hot reload in Visual Studio. Welcome, Isadora. Thank you. Hello, it's such an honor. Oh, oh, it's great, great, to, have it's great to have you on. I feel like hot reload kind of sucked the air out of the room because it's such a cool capability. Yes. That a lot of the other nifty debugging features that came in 2022 just didn't get the same amount of love. Yes, that's true. I'm I'm a bit biased because I have been working hot reload the whole year. So <laughs> yeah, so you're just used to it. It's been around yeah. for a yes, while. Yes, but we have so so many awesome features that has been out recently. Like the, have you ever used the external source node? No. That's something really exciting that's coming out. It's basically it uses uh, source link, so you can just open. Um, just whatever Nugget packages or DLLs that has source link enabled, and then you can explore the source code for those. Cool. Based on the symbol information. So rather than rather than writing comments everywhere, you can link back to other source. It's like, hey, just go look at this source in this other project. In fact, you should be using this source. It's a library for a reason. Mm. Yes. I like that. The thing about hot reload that's frustrating is that it didn't come out for everything all at once right so yes. once you have a taste of hot reload in you know <laughs> blazer you want it yeah. in the you know the to work exactly the same way in um you know all of your applications mm-hmm. and even in the preview applications like maui that uh so i guess you know that is it's a little frustrating, but when do you see do you see .NET seven as being the sort of the 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 focal point of when hot yes. reload works everywhere? Definitely, and the problem is that it's so so much work. Like forgetting, it's a lot of edge case scenarios mm-hmm. for every little like scenario. So Maui and Blazor. Yeah, uh, we are currently listening to a lot of feedback and just looking for all bug reports and improving that. And it has improved a lot, especially for Maui and Blazor which we have been investing for upcoming releases. Right. And Maui's still, we haven't seen a final of Maui yet. I mean, the latest previews are pretty slick, but yeah, mm-hmm. like, you got to you gotta get that done before you can get hot reload done for, for yes. Maui. Yeah, yeah. But we, we have been watching pretty closely and making sure the architecture works and following all the feedback. And some of hot, hot reload stuff works fine for Maui right now for the preview mm-hmm. bits. It's just, you know, the, it... it it's playing catch up, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's so many different scenarios for hot reload because you can use hot reload without debugging. Mm. And then there's experience with debugging mm. and they can be pretty differently. And then sometimes they have to work together. So we actually support if you have a non-debugging session with a debugging session, you should be able to hot reload on both of those. That's cool. So it can get pretty chaotic. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I, I had just exploded there. That's that does. That should work? What? I don't know how that would work. <laughs> yeah, we do have conference. We test that. Like we, you can also do multi-process. So if you have multiple processes, you can do hot reload on all of them. Oh, man. 
yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. you got to figure out those threading problems once for us, and then we don't have yeah. to think about it ever. Yeah. Yeah. I think at some point, like one issue that I have is that I don't ask myself why I should do it, just mm. how I can do it. Mm. No, all right. Should I have done that? Just <laughs> because you can. I've done it. <laughs> yeah, Send like, a thousand <laughs> tweets. Doesn't mean you should. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm. So you don't work on Maui, you work in debugging. So yes. you regularly interact with that team as they're making progress to yes. do validation for stuff like hot reload and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So we did, we did have syncs every week. Uh, with So like Dimitri has mentioned previously, like 10 different teams. We were all mm -hmm. syncing together to make hot reload work. And then usually I work pretty close with the project system team or just Roslyn. Right. But I have been working as well with Maui. Blazer. Yeah, I, I just got to think each of these libraries where you're going to be diving deeply into debugging, that yeah. you, you need to spend some time with them, make sure the hooks are right, and are mm -hmm. we going to be able to get where we need to go? Got, yeah, that, that's uh, that's the thing that I love about the debugger is that we are always piecing everyone together. Mm -hmm. We are always passing information around, and we kind of oversee like everything. Yeah, you get that view of everything that's being built because it all has to work with the debugger. Yeah. Yes. Now, does that sometimes mean you're sort of pressing on them making changes to make it work with debugging better? Sometimes, but sometimes it can also come the other way. Mm -hmm. Things you can change in the debugger to be a more yeah. tolerant of their tools. Yeah, yeah. For example, we want to improve the diagnostic information for hot right. reload. So we want to put more detailed information. So we, so the debugger is working on that, and then the other teams will also implement on top of that. So that's how usually it goes. Yeah, of course. You've got teams inside of Microsoft counting on Hot Reload to do their to work on their debugging yeah. Yeah. as well. So they're debugging their own code and then filing stuff with you guys, as well as building their code that your debugger needs to work in. Yeah, yeah. My favorite bit is when I get to debug the Visual Studio debugger use and use Hot Reload on top of that. I knew she was a debugger. Debugger. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, do you um, interact with the App Insights locally as well? That's sort of like, you know, debugger on steroids with instrumentation and all that stuff. Is How, how closely related to that is the debugger? So the, uh, this is, should be the diagnostics team. So that's not the debugger team precisely, but it's just like one of our sister teams. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, but everything has to work, right? And especially in yes. a hot reload world, I can't imagine what the app insights team is what kind of hair they're pulling out of their heads. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, is the hardest debugging problem async code. Is that true? Like it's generally hard to hunt down when async code goes wrong. Oh, it's, it's really tricky. It's so I, I, I guess everyone knows here, like it can be really tricky to narrow down what exactly happened, especially before when we didn't have the tools. Yeah. It was just chaos. Well, it's one because you don't necessarily know the execution order in async code, right? Like you're calling off a bunch of things and, and they're all running a, their own way and taking their own time. Yep. The callbacks yep. are going to come or not yeah. over a certain period of time. And like just because you hit F5 again doesn't mean you're going to get the same results. Yes. You can just fire and forget stuff and they are just laying somewhere. You never mm -hmm. know where exactly. And if they are not in the, on the physical stack, if you yeah. didn't have anything that actually pulled the task objects or anything, you never know if it's there or not. Right. So uh, you did a video series that I saw on this whole async <laughs> debugging. So 2022 added some new features. Yes. So uh, we did. Uh, so we worked really, really hard because we we had this feature before that's called the Parallels Tasks, tasks window. Mm -hmm. But they uh, it was not up to date with the latest .NET 5, .NET 6 tasks improvements. Right. So um, uh, me as well with other folks on the team, like Ron Kumar, and, like we work with David Fowler from the from the runtime to just make sure that everything that was async in .NET would work correctly with the debugger. Because what we do for making, to improve the async experience is basically reverse engineering, whatever the syntax sugar that the compiler does. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So we need to make sure. So like there's if sometimes we are inspecting fields that they define in the CLR. So like if you go to the CLR, GitHub, codebase, they have these fields. These are the ones that we inspect. So if they change the name of the variable, for example, it breaks. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? Yes. <laughs> of course, lots of code shakes, breaks if you change your variable names. Yeah, be careful about that. Yeah. So we, we did a lot of work into just uh, first making it faster. So we did mm -hmm. a lot of performance improvements so we can narrow down all the tasks objects much faster. And then uh, the second bit was just making sure that information looks correct. So, for example, we have value tasks, which are one of my favorites because they don't have like heap space. So uh, value tasks, we need to inspect those as well, as well as tasks objects. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that all the scenarios are covered. And then the nice parallel tasks, tasks view need to make sense with the task objects. Like one of my favorites that uh, Rankmar in the debugger team as well has added, for example, it was like, uh, we have this lock object. Right. So if something, if a task is being locked by another, like with a lock from another thread, we mm -hmm. do have this icon saying, oh, you're deadlocked. So, yeah, so you like, can see so, visually yeah. that you've got that lock at that time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, is it actually, are we actually just talking it's blocked or it's actually deadlocked as in it's holding A needs B and the other threads holding B needs A, like the exactly. true deadlock that's unresolvable. Yeah, this deadlock. Right. That's unresolvable. And the answer is kill something. Yes, like <laughs> right. some, someone is doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, and somebody has to die. Someone's yes. going to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like uh, one of the features that I mostly use on that is just the control F because you can search for things. So if you have a hunch, because sometimes it may be huge stacks. Mm, so you have right. a hunch that something there is hanging or blocking something. So just control F. And then you can see all these continuation stacks of that's there. They're just waiting for stuff, and then yeah. you can see if something really happened, and then debug it from there. Because yeah, I mean, a deadlock is sort of an extreme scenario, and it's and in some ways a good thing because it's like, okay, well, this is just the way we wrote the code mm. allowed for deadlock. Don't do that. As opposed to call went off and has just never come back, and we don't, and we're not getting a recovery mechanism, or we've lost the message. It came back, and we didn't yeah. pick it up. Like yeah. that's the thing that's frustrating when you get in the situation with this non-repeatability. It's like once in a while it fails, and I have no idea why. Yes, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking when you can't really know what it's a race condition, what happened. Yeah. So any information you got, you should get it. So that's that's why like. In, when you're using the tasks view, mm -hmm. we are looking for in a dump file, for example, we are looking for all the tasks objects that are found mm -hmm. within your app. And then we are showing that to you. So everything that is a task, here it is. Right. So it can be tricky because if you just have methods that are not async, they mm -hmm. are just returning something. They may not even show up there because it, it does, it's just rooting at existing task object okay so it's just looking at what it's it's really looking at the list of callbacks it's got and saying yes. like, what am i waiting for here's yeah. your list but if you're yeah. just calling regular synchronous stuff it's never even gonna appear in that list yes okay yeah that yeah the theory where you wanted to debug the async stuff anyway but if you've got a dependency on a synchronous call that's that's a trick you yes. have to figure out what's going on there yeah Yes, yes. So that's why it helps a lot, uh, just knowing exactly how async is going to work under the hoods, because otherwise yeah. people might miss it as well. Yeah, and async doesn't necessarily mean multi-threaded either, right? It's just asynchronous. Yeah. Right? Yes. Although it can be multi-threaded. This is where you get to that repeatability problem, right? Is under circumstances, other threads may be spun up. You have no control over that. But the behavior has to be exactly the same, whether you're using another thread or not, right? or should be <laughs> yeah so yeah that's all about the like the context you're currently executing so it can be really tricky if you need the main thread for example and then you need to make sure you're resuming on the main thread right mm -hmm. and but it, that begs the question then is it possible that you're only having failures because threads are being spun up and something's going wrong yeah that can be like for example you can have a thread pool starvation right so you're not never executing a task because you don't have any more threads to execute that. Interesting. Okay. And then it's just hanging and like, why? And then you have to figure out like... And it's waiting like for a thread to be freed up. And this yes. is where you get into that deadlock. That's another kind of deadlock, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, that's the, yeah. These other threads aren't going to be freed up till I can spin up another thread and finish something for them. And I can't spin up another thread because I'm out of threads. I have not thought about this stuff till since like web development 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Like we did this stuff all the time in, in back uh -huh. then 
Well, I did. I, you know, I haven't had, but I'm like, now you bring it all back to me. I think I have PTSD. <laughs> no. <laughs> Instantly traumatized. Like, no. Thread pool starvation. No. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I remember doing this back on IIS where we would expand the thread pool. Like for certain execution mm -hmm. blocks, it made sense to actually make the thread pool bigger. Is that yeah. a reasonable answer to that problem? We we did answer that problem several times like that. Yeah, because I, I thought thread yeah. pool starvation was kind of a thing of the past that the that with new processes, new architecture, they would just sort of lifted that limit in the first place. There wasn't really a idea of a limiting a thread pool. Yeah, so we still see those like for example in Visual Studio, sometimes we are debugging and then like we are debugging issues, mm -hmm. and then it's like. With more experience, I'm more used to seeing something like, oh, it's thread pool restoration. But at the at the beginning, it was really hard to nail down to that exact problem. Right. So you just done this long enough now that you can you can smell thread pool starvation. You like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of get, oh, this this smells tricky. And then like uh yeah, but then usually we we start by allocating a larger thread pool just to debug and see if that's actually the problem when we are not really sure. But sometimes, oh. like, most of the times we can just, like, it's it's a root problem that is causing that thread pool starvation. So, yeah, you expand the pool to see if it changes behavior. Funny, I just mm -hmm. literally tweeted this out today as a guy. <laughs> was the, the, the cartoon of a guy going, hooray, I've made progress. The error message has changed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I start debugging by figuring out, can I actually influence the outcome in any way? Uh, <laughs> and so if I change the thread pool and behavior changes, and at least, okay, it's something to do with the thread pool. Now let's try and figure it out. Yeah. My, <laughs> my favorite debugging technique is like ripping off all my changes until it works. And then I slowly <laughs> add them again until yeah, the bug repos again. Breaks. Yeah. And yeah. then I, there it is. This is the. <laughs> Although, yeah. And most of the time it's like, so was, was the last change really at fault? that now it's occurring or is it a combination of those changes? Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All, all of these things are hard. And is there, I'm going to interrupt for one moment with this very important message. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know, Raygun is sponsoring this portion of .NET rocks and who better to talk about Raygun than Raygun, JD Trask. Welcome for a few seconds. Awesome. Hi. Howdy, guys. Hey, JD, I've read your stuff and you talk a lot about that sort of customer centric mindset that you can use logging to really understand that your customers are happy or not happy, whether they tell you directly or not. Uh, talk more about that, because I think being really customer centric today is super important. Yeah, it's absolutely critical in, in today's business. And, you know, a lot of there's a lot been written about this for, say, for example, what Amazon's done trying to be the most customer centric business. You know, people are putting the customer first and that applies as much in software. Even at mm -hmm. the end of the day, when we're talking about things like IoT and, and whatnot, ultimately, why do we build software? We build it for human beings, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't think about the user, the person who's on the receiving end of our software, uh, we are missing the primary stakeholder. In it you know yeah. it's not actually our employer it's not really even us as a coder it's the customer and so making sure that they are the center of how you think about these things is really important so i'll give you one small concrete example we do obviously track errors with one of our products and we will also track how many unique users have been impacted by that error now that's not identifying wow. data it's just a GUID that we do a distinct count on but that way you could say if i had 10,000 errors that affected 10,000 customers or i had 10,000 errors that was one customer stuck in a loop right helping mm. you prioritize and sort and manage that for maximum customer impact is something that i think is missing from a lot of these sort of ops tools and whatnot where you're just keeping an eye on stuff and you might be fixing something just because the graph is wrong not because a customer was having a bad experience. I think that's something that we need to continue to evolve and push on as as a as an industry. Boy, you got that right, man. It's like a bunch of chefs sitting around a pot of soup and not being able to taste it and saying, I think it needs more of this. No, no, it <laughs> needs more of that. Right? That, that is an awesome analogy I'm going to steal, Carl. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, anything to do with food, that's right up my alley. <laughs> that's where you go. And if you want to know more about Raygun, go to raygun.com and click on... Start your free trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey. 
And we're talking to Isdora from Microsoft, who works in debugging and uh, talking a little bit about async debugging. She's specific debugger, debugger. Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, when you're working in the tools, <laughs> how do you, I mean, how often do you get a chance to talk to regular folks who are using Visual Studio and doing development and struggling with debugging? All the time, like yeah. uh, the developer community. We diagnose bugs directly through that, so I'm always replying to issues that are brought up there. And I just think you're so immersed in debugging thinking. Like, I suspect you think about debugging very differently from the average developer. Yeah, that's interesting. I have noticed that with a couple of friends, like, that are not in the debugger team. That, like, they see a bug, my first hunch is put a breakpoint on it. Like, yeah. while you're executing a game, just put a breakpoint. <laughs> Stop there and then look at the state of affairs yeah. at that point where the bug happens. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it's just a good strategy to, mm. to start with that rather than yeah. change any code. Yeah. Another thing that I love, it's just a setting next statement. Mm-hmm. So you stop somewhere and then you change the flow so you can get inside a new yeah. condition. Code or if player. an exception happens, you just unwind from that and then execute again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, changing the flow on the fly, like it helps so much. I wonder how many folks even know all of these features in debugging too. Like a lot of folks are just step over, step on, step yeah. into just wa- I'm watching their code execute and, and maybe watching a few va- values as they occur, not even realizing, hey, you know, you can really drag that execution block back and try that again. Like, which is, seems insane. Like, if you well, there's some switch that you need to do too. Like I, 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 I've had situations where I've tried to do that, and or maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was edit and continue. Edit and continue is something you have to turn on, right? Or or is it on by default? I think I think you are talking about the the step back. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's because it relies on snapshots, so you need to take snapshots of your app. But that's a different thing. That's like going back. Yeah. Time for yeah. previous one. If you're online, if it stops online 15, I'd like to change the code that caused that exception and back up to line 12 and run it again. Yeah. And so that's like edit and continue with moving the code pointer. Yes, but that should work without enabling any extra stuff. As long as you have edit and continue, it should work on the fly. Don't even need to unwind the exception. Yeah, maybe I got into an issue, an issue where that wasn't being set by default in my template or something. I don't know. I mean, I mean, to be fair, I have fixed that like one year and a half ago. So mm-hmm. it was not working <laughs> before and then I made it work. <laughs> well, you know, that, that would be just like me to bring up a year and a half old issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I love the scenario. So I want to make sure it works. So like, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to add this. Like we are going to cover it. <laughs> right. And is there any any type of uh, Visual Studio template where that doesn't work? You know, maybe like uh, in a code block in Blazor, because I know that's like a different editor than your regular. The exceptional winding or just edit. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't work if you if your state is broken. For example, you had a Stack Overflow exception. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So there's no yeah you so cannot you can't recover from, from Stack that. Overflow. That's, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then it, it has a message saying, oh, I'm sorry, you cannot really do anything here. It's broken. Right. Well, there's a joke in there somewhere. I'm sure yeah. there is. <laughs> <laughs> there's a website joke in there somewhere. I'm right. sure there is. StackOverflow.com. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I say, you know, if I'm, if I'm working on some code and I'm debugging, I'm stepping through some code, and Kelly, my wife, comes in for anything. I just look at her and go, Stack Overflow. You know, because like I got a stack here and it's kind of volatile. And if you start talking to me, I'm not going to know what's going on. (laughs) So and then she's like, I just brought you some coffee, dude. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) Back to work. Everything's fine. We're fine. We're fine. We're all fine here. How are you? (laughs) All right. Let's get back. get Dive into this further. Is the debugger in Visual Studio the same one that we can now get in Studio Code? Is it just a standalone component now, or are they actually separate code bases? So they are separate. Okay. They do re- they do share some components, but mm-hmm. overall they are like different, especially yeah. if it's cross-platform. So if you have something debugger in Linux and then Windows, we do have to cover each 
differently mm -hmm. because of the lower the lower you get, the more specific you are. Like yeah, putting sure. breakpoints, you need to get the APIs for actually running the memory and changing the structure and breakpoints. And but hot reload exists outside of Studio as well. It's part of .NET. Yeah, so there's .NET Watch as well that you can use uh, hot reload on there as well. Right. So I mean, I guess that's part. Of, I think it's part of what makes it so challenging is there's so .NET exists in all these different forms. Yeah. Uh, and so depending on how you want to develop, you still have access to it. So we used to think about this stuff as just being in studio. Mm -hmm. It's it's in a lot of other places. Yeah, yeah. In, in Visual Studio, it's easier because we do have the whole workflow. Yeah. So if we want to make something work very easily, you can just talk to the folks that own that component and say, we wanted to make that work nicely. For example, we have the autosave feature. Right. But we suspect that if you have a hot reload on save, that might do everything turning to madness. <laughs> so, okay, so if it's due to an auto save, for now we are not applying a hot reload, only if it's an explicit save. Mm. So we need to talk to the folks there and they add a flag and then we listen to that flag and make sure that's covered. Right, yeah. Yeah, I can see how this just gets, you just get tangled up in all of this very pretty easily, actually. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's so many scenarios because then we have, again, like we have Blazor Maui and a lot of different .NET scenarios. Yeah, does this become a multiplier with each new library being added in? Like we we already talked about about the challenges with hot reload in in Blazor and and Maui, but mm -hmm. you know, the, how much does each of those different UI implementations and uh, and server side implementations affect the debugger? Like, do you write a lot of if Maui code? No, we try to reuse as much as we can. Sure. And then we just have these conventions and flags, and okay. Okay, we have the whole workflow, so you can just reuse that. And that works in most of the scenarios. So, for example, in Hot Reload, we didn't have any architecture that supported Hot Reload without a debugger. Right. So we just had to come up with that from scratch and say, okay, let's find a way to make sure that different workloads work. And then they can pass through and then we can just pass information without yes. anything, any debugger to apply the changes. It's not our job here okay. because there's no debugger. Yeah, because you don't need to have a debugger there. Mm. Yeah. They aren't using one for whatever reason. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just thinking through these interactions because then, of course, you you do work with those teams to understand what the debugging experience is going to look like. And that might lead to a feature in the debugger, but not specific to that stack. Yeah. It's very rare for us to do something very specific to the stack. Right. Usually they have a weird scenario and then we have to understand that scenario. Like Blazor WebAssembly was challenging. Yeah. Because they have a JavaScript debugger and then on top of that has .NET and then we had to figure out how to make all that work with yeah. hot reload. And it's running out at the edge. You know, yeah. it's running out on the client device, not yeah. on the server as well. Which yeah. that's always been voodoo that I'm setting breakpoints on code <laughs> on not not on my machine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but then um yeah, the context shift, right? Because you're actually running through Wasm. So you know yeah. You're putting code into that Wasm assembly. I gotta presume you are. That when you're running, yeah. the, you're using the debugger. You're inserting. You have to have run in that context. And it's even more crazy when you step out into JavaScript and start debugging that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what debug JavaScript even looks like. It's, Is that a thing? It's a thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You can debug JavaScript. Yeah. I know you can, but I'm just like you know the idea that any. JavaScript is without bugs <laughs> astonishes me. Yeah, I have a, I have a <laughs> I had to get used to stop uh calling, you know, console.log and start putting breakpoints in there. Right. It's like a habit. Console.log got here. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I still use uh, assert sometimes just so it has a window so I can attach to the process. Mm -hmm. Right. So I still use some sort of logging, but it's very rare. <laughs> Yeah, but it's also a fair way to go. So, it, but that's still it wasn't that mm -hmm. old Bill Vaughn line. That was the whole. That's I want to wait for the accident to happen and then look at the tire mark. Yeah, we, let's. Mm -hmm. Where do we stack the bodies? Yeah, so where do we stack the bodies? Yeah. Like, as opposed to we don't have the error, but it's but the idea that rather than debugging, like we're maybe we're spoiled, right? Debugging <laughs> used to always be just run it till it fails and look at the log. 
Uh, right? And literally, you just look at the accident as opposed to now where we're stuck. You like you said, you set the breakpoint on the uh, on the code that's the problem, and now you're living in the live environment of the code executing and can yeah. assess values, even adjust them, and continue on. Yes. Oh, I love I love changing the variables in the locals watch window. I do that all the time. Yeah. What if it was this? <laughs> yes. Uh, I would like to see, and this is a request for not for you probably because it's it might be a little outside your scope, but um, to be able to debug something on my phone, um, mm -hmm. a Maui app on my phone that I'm running in Visual Studio in an Azure VM. Hmm. I can currently hook it up and you know pass things through to a U through a USB kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that works, but, but it doesn't debug and it certainly doesn't hot reload. <laughs> oh, let mm -hmm. me, let me rephrase that. It does debug. It's just like it stops. And then five minutes later, the breakpoint happens. You know, it's, it's really, <laughs> really slow. So I, I understand I that, uh, you know, that you're, you guys are dealing with a lot of state and a lot of data mm -hmm. across the wire with those things, but. It would just be really cool to figure, and and you you're already doing stuff like this too, and in Xamarin Forms they had something like that, mm -hmm. but uh, I, those are the kinds of things that I love. You know these innovations where, oh, I I can now do that. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I'm pretty sure they are improving that scenario that I just described. Like I I talk with Maui team every week. Because we do have updates, yeah. so I I can see like how much effort they are putting into like bringing scenarios like your the one you just awesome. just described work better. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to have friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can put it onto the Visual Studio community page, and it's true. And, I mean, they that's literally where they decide on features coming, and and yeah, uh, yeah, we we yeah. we look at that. Yeah, yeah, and that's Wait. that's pretty much what I I do like every day that I'm. Bug, mm. just bug fixing i'm following up with people on developer community in the in that dev community site so we, yeah. we probably like i just saw andy sterling's there name yeah. on there on the whole arm thing i'm sure your name's in there as well you're responding to folks that are actually asking for features yes it's it's remarkably open if you think about it like that that's just the tool you guys use internally as well and and any member of the public can contribute to it yeah, I, I like how direct it is. Like we can mm -hmm. just follow through and see right away. Yeah, it, the the trick is, of course, don't add a new issue when it's already there and been voted on several thousand times. Like mm -hmm. add your vote. Yeah, right. yeah. Search first, enter later. Yeah, we do duplicates a lot. We're like, okay, yeah. this is a duplicate. I'm going to root through there. Mm. And sometimes they also do the other way around. They have an issue that they think it's the same one, but it's not. So I have right. to say, okay, yeah. if I want to investigate, at least create a different one. And I'm yeah. Unix, now flank. <laughs> um, bef before we uh, wrap up here, I'll give you another opportunity to think of some cool debugging uh, wizardry that maybe not everybody knows about because maybe it's new or maybe because it's not that discoverable. But is there anything else that you can think of? So we did a lot of improvements around breakpoints as well. You have dependent breakpoints. That you can say, oh, only hit that breakpoint if that other breakpoint has been hit before. Okay. So that's something interesting as well that it's recent. Dependent breakpoints. Is that something that's easy to discover how to do? I think so. I think if you click on settings mm -hmm. or on the breakpoints, you can, like one of the options, when you put a condition, for example, one of the options is just, oh, uh, only hit this if this other breakpoint is oh. going to be hit. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Because it's, you know, especially when you talk about these transient behaviors, right. what you want is if we're to just continue, say we're going to iterate multiple times until we hit that transient behavior. Mm. So I don't want the breakpoint to be hit until mm -hmm. something's different. Yeah, and it can be way. it can be nice for race conditions as well, depending yeah. if you can reproduce that on debug bits. <laughs> well, and that's one of the problems when you're always stepping through code, right? Is that often mm. none of those race conditions happen because they're sensitive to speed and yes. time of execution. Uh, yep. I've run into, you know, this is an old joke of mine from dealing with SQL Profiler back in the day when that was the way you diagnosed deadlocks in databases, that putting the profiler on altered the behavior enough the deadlock never happened as long as the profiler was on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was generating gigabytes per second of data, mm -hmm. but 
you know, it did alter behavior enough. Of course, the reaction of everyone with that was, well, then just leave it on. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, nah, it's not a good strategy, actually. Red dot sleep. <laughs> yeah, I'll just add some weights. <laughs> but there is this, there is an issue here, right? That sometimes mm -hmm. introducing a debugger to these kinds of transient things can actually change the behavior of the code. I don't know if yeah. you ever run into that. Yeah, that's why logging is still a fair way to debug. Yeah. Because a lot of the times you cannot really attach a debugger. You have to see what happens. Yeah, that's because of the effects of the debugger. That, uh, a scenario yeah. that comes to mind is the watch window, right? So, like, you're in this crazy, you know, um, real time code where it's timing sensitive. And normally what I do is I hit a breakpoint and then I find the variable and I add it to the watch window. But it'd be really nice to just say, hey, can you just watch this variable and, you know, ignore when it gets set the first time, but then the next time it changes, break, you know, that kind of thing. You mean like data data breakpoints? Oh, oh, the watch run variable changes? Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that watches that object variable. Right, yeah, you can watch variables and break when it changes, for, but you have to yeah. run it, hit the breakpoint, and then add it to the watch window first. At least that's my my experience oh yeah yeah that's true yeah so that 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 feature in particular it was my intern project are you kidding i prototyped no. yeah no it's true what? <laughs> we only have our c plus plus so i prototyped the c sharp one <laughs> wow yeah awesome. and then it, yeah and then it actually became a feature that dude and then i came back as a full-time so wow I, i'm i'm odd I, I just love, you know, when I hear stories like that, I run into, oh, yeah, I wrote that. What? <laughs> <laughs> Let me shake your hand. Thank you. Yeah. Solve yeah, you that know problem. that you, you can add on uh, properties as well. So you can add data breakpoints and watch the values of properties. So can I, I can watch them before I run? I can add them to the list? No. The, unfortunately, that's like, that's something that it will be, I, I will look if we have something around that scenario in particular, but that mm. would be something interesting as well. Yeah. It'd be really great for these sort of, like I say, real-time things where you can't mm -hmm. afford to take the few seconds to, you know, by the time you do mm -hmm. that, like something else is piled up. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's fair. Or, yeah. or how about this? How about add some metacode to uh, conditionally watch a variable based on logic? So you can say in the code, you know, if if the value is null, which means it's the first time we haven't hit this, right? Then mm -hmm. write some meta code to to watch to add this variable to the watch window. Yeah, I think I think the trickier part is just getting the variable address because we don't right. know what is the variable address beforehand. Right, but mm -hmm. if but it was we, part we of the code, that. I you'd have the variable address. Huh? <laughs> hmm? <laughs> No, but uh, to be fair, I can see several ways we can fix that. It's, it's just, an interesting dilemma, yeah. and it's not not every day that I come across it. But I, you know, once in a while, I'm like, yeah, that would be neat. Uh -huh. If I could. No, yeah, that's that's great feedback. Thank you. <laughs> not to change gears too much, but you you also study a lot of AI technologies in school. And yeah, I did. Yeah, I did in back in university. Yeah, in university. And uh -huh. We're seeing more of this come into studio in general, right? Mm -hmm. Like just more of the deep learning models and this ability in, in some ways for your tool to help anticipate your needs. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering about where, what kind of deep learning models we could get into debugging. Like how much can this thing start to recognize a, a pattern of bug behavior that it could just help you diagnose? Yeah, that, that's a really tricky one because the thing about uh, just like machine learning and deep learning is that people sometimes throw stuff at it, but it's not necessarily the best use. Sure. So, for example, the one thing that I actually think it's really good, it's just an IntelliCode uh, code prediction mm -hmm. on Visual Studio. Yet sometimes it's it's really... It's spooky it's really is weird. what it is. Spooky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it knows exactly. So I think that's a great... Example. Of, okay, don't you think that's awesome. just that's the that's the byproduct of GitHub, right? That they were able to explore this huge data set and say, well, yeah. when other people are writing code like this, they tend to go this direction. Yeah, you know, yeah. That, and I and I my, immediately when I think about this idea of a learning model against debugging, there's no good data sets. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have a set you could really learn from. Oh, that's just, so the tricky thing is 
building that data set. Mm -hmm. I think that's... Yeah, how would we accumulate? Because GitHub became this repository of so much source code that you get a, that you can build a data set around what likely mm -hmm. behaviors are for writing code. But what's mm -hmm. the equivalent data set for debugging? Because debugging is so personal. Hmm. Dump files. Yeah. You can have dump files and then you can maybe leverage call stacks into a, a model that works. Hmm and train on top of that, like, oh, if this call stack with these variables are always set, uh, there is a null pointer exception. And then yeah. that's, so yeah, that's pulling the, all together. What would, that call stack data collection, yeah, it's like a, the, it's like a bucket of tears is what it is. Like, here's all <laughs> yeah. the pain of everybody's work. <laughs> Let's analyze it. <laughs> the, the null checking works pretty well for that kind of stuff and warning you that, you know, hey, this could be null right here. You ought to check for it with, you know, mm -hmm. you know, with nice little green squiggles that you can ignore at your own peril. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's a pre that's a preventative approach. Yeah. As opposed to, I have a problem with this code. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. This code is misbehaving. But mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's a that's almost a bridge too far. I mean, at least we know enough now to immediately like, what's the set? How do we test this? How do we learn from this? Yeah, I think the trick is is just like there is all this effort into building the data set mm -hmm. and. Like, is it worth it? Would yeah. it be worth the result? That's the thing. And the thing with machine learning is that sometimes you don't really know. You have to yeah, try, try it out. And uh, yeah, also train that model. Are, is it training wheels, right? Are you making dumber developers by not <laughs> forcing them to look at the error output and actually read it and figure out what's well, going on? Well, I mean, by that token, why are we giving them keyboards? They could just be using Chromium tw tweezers to organize the electrons by hand. Now that's right? just crazy talk. <laughs> literally i mean i i do love the the cold prediction like it's a lot of things that i would do i would search like on stack overflow how to right. do that and then they just do it like my yeah. dream is that they predict the red rejects because i have to search rejects every time I use well, reject. as well you should don't keep that stuff in your head right yeah it'll, it'll just hurt you so imagine yes. if your your hands didn't work and you couldn't use a keyboard and you had to write code just with audible commands that uh call prediction stuff is going to come in mighty mighty handy that's true mm -hmm. yeah yeah it comes it comes in pretty handy if you're typing too oh yeah sure certainly does time. but i mean you could foresee a future where you know you could sort of speak your code and just with call prediction stuff it would be enough yeah i wonder yeah it's getting weirder it's getting weirder true <laughs> that's true well Isadora it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show and thanks uh, and Thank yeah you. thanks for um, allowing me to uh, make my personal suggestions available <laughs> to you it. just because I'm on the show <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that and no uh, it's, it's been great and we always learn something so thanks awesome thank you it has been really awesome thanks for inviting you me bet. and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Life is hard.